Well, in case anybody isn't aware, I'm Edward Malcolm, and my subject is a brief history of the Anglo-Saxon church. I say in case you're not aware, I assume everyone's got a program for the day. Well, a brief history of the Anglo-Saxon church. To speak of the Anglo-Saxon church is to do two things. It is to speak, first of all, of the coming of the Anglo-Saxons to this land, and secondly, of their conversion. There can be no Anglo-Saxon church without both Anglo-Saxons and the gospel. We may also add a third thing if we wanted to, and that is that uh, at some point the Anglo-Saxons became the English. But that is all to do with invasions, the coming of the Anglo-Saxons, and the turnabout from Anglo-Saxon to English. It's all to do with invasions, wars, trials, difficulties, and the rise and fall and rise again of the gospel in this land. As to dates, well, we can trace the origin of the Anglo-Saxon Britain to around the year 450. We can give the more exact date for the end of the Anglo-Saxon period as the 14th of October, 1066. And as every schoolboy and schoolgirl knows, that was the Battle of Hastings. But when we think of the origin of the Anglo-Saxon church, whether we like it or not, we have to go to the year 597, when a certain monk came from Rome named Augustine and arrived at Canterbury. And therefore, the period before us is, roughly speaking, five centuries. But given how tumultuous those centuries were, uh, we can only speak of uh, a few highlights, uh, which actually uh, is a great help to any speaker on the subject, <clears throat> because there are only certain highlights about which we know a very great deal. So it's quite easy to pick out the peaks when you don't have anything to see in the troughs. And in order to understand where this uh, situation arose from, it is helpful to look at the background. For the background, we need to consider that Britain became a Christian nation, or at least a church was established, would be a more accurate way of putting it, under Roman occupation. If you've ever read Bede, uh, people of a certain age may actually have read Bede at school in their younger uh, days. It was the required reading for the history of Britain. Um, Bede's contention is that whatever came out of Rome is good, and whatever came out of Britain to Rome is bad. We'll hear more about that later. And that's why he dates the beginning of British history to the first uh, coming of Julius Caesar in 55 BC, and is very thankful for all that happened after that. Well, as to when Christianity came to Britain, some people will tell you it was Joseph of Arimathea and the Apostle Paul, take no notice. We don't know when it was, but we know that by the year 314, there were British bishops present at the Synod or Council of Arles in France. And considering one of the decisions of that council was that no bishop should be consecrated without the assistance of at least three other bishops, it seems reasonable to suppose that there were at least four bishops in Britain at the time. But that's probably the only conclusion we can reasonably draw from that. The main point of the, uh, the synod was to combat Donatism, but nobody thinks that the Donatists were very much in presence, much, much of a presence in Britain at that time. 
Perhaps more significantly is the, uh, the, the journey of a man uh, known as Morgan, or that was his name, but he, he has another name, Morgan, who, as you can tell from the name, must have been a Welshman, uh, or Irish, or Scottish, um, because the name could have applied to any of them at the time. Uh, he went from Britain, perhaps as early as AD 380, perhaps as late as 400. He went to Rome. He was a very popular preacher. His commentaries are still published. But I suspect that if the Banner of Truth or Reformation Heritage were to start publishing his commentaries now, we would have reason to get rather concerned. Because he's better known to us by his Latinized name, Pelagius. Now, Pelagius, it would appear, uh, went to Rome full of gospel zeal and was rather put off by what he found by way of Roman Christianity. And it led him into the heresy, for which he is well known. Uh, his attack on the effect of the fall, his restatement of human nature, and his advocacy of free will. And uh, there he carried on teaching these things in Rome until the year 410, when Alaric the Goth decided to sack Rome. If you're wondering about the Goths, the Goths are the inhabitants of Gotland, and Gotland, of course, is a portion of Denmark. And the Ostrogoths, or the Austrogoths, were the Eastern Goths who occupied um, uh, what we would call Austria, Hungary, that sort of region uh, at the time. Well, Alaric sacked Rome, and uh, a lot of people decided it was time to leave in a very great hurry, and the nearest safe haven was North Africa, and uh, Pelagius went to North uh, Africa, and there he came up against the formidable Augustine of Hippo. And uh, Hippo, uh, uh, Augustine uh, w w challenged his views in a very forthright manner. Uh, the um, uh, Council of Carthage in AD 418 condemned Pelagianism as heresy. Uh, Augustine was very put out that they didn't also condemn Pelagius as a heretic, that would have to wait until the first council of Ephesus in AD 431. So two things come out of this. First of all, where did Pelagius learn his theology? I don't mean his heresy, but that which made him such a good preacher before he went to Rome. It is possible that he learned it in Rome or on the way, because he may well have stopped off in places in Gaul, which were, had great centers of Christianity. But it is also possible that he learned it in this island, that the state of Christian education in this land was sufficiently high for a man like Morgan or Pelagius to become a very gifted and able preacher and expositor of scripture. And if that's the case, then it speaks well of the uh, level of instruction that was happening in the country at the time. But the other thing that comes out of this was the reaction to Pelagianism and uh, the most evident point of that was that a um, Gaulish bishop, Germanus, uh, if you go to St. Germans down in Cornwall, that's named after him, Bishop Germanus came to Britain in 429, and he went on something of a crusade to root out Pelagianism. Whether he found any is not recorded, but he did have a survey of the church, or an opportunity to survey the church, and he found that the church was disorganized, and that theological education by that stage was poor. And there may well be a good reason for it. I've mentioned the sack of Rome in 410. And some people have said, well, that means that, of course, the, the legions were withdrawn to, to go and defend Rome. 
But others have pointed out that Rome was already experiencing economic decline, and the fringes of the empire were very expensive to maintain, and the Romans were departing anyway. There is also evidence, uh, not far from Reading, south of there is a place called Silchester, and massive excavations have been done there on the old Roman uh, um, settlement, and it has been discovered that uh, Roman buildings carried on towards the end of the 5th century, so long after the supposed departure. Uh, but uh, other uh, archaeological evidence shows that within Roman settlements, within the walls, people began to plough up the ground and plant crops, which suggests that they were under threat outside and needed somewhere secure within those premises to feed themselves. What was happening? Well, for one thing, the Irish were on the rampage. They uh, came into parts of, the, uh, of Western Britain, and among other things, they took, Patrick, uh, took captive a lad uh, we know as Patrick, Romano-British lad from a noble family. Uh, the Patrician is his name, but of course it's, it's come down to us as Patrick. He lived among the Irish in a particular kingdom where he was, uh, learned their language. He was a slave there. At some point he left, probably escaped, came back to Britain. Uh, he was already a believer. He um, took holy orders. He became a monk, which was what you did if you took holy orders in those days. And he returned to Ireland to preach the gospel to the people who had enslaved him. And the romantic view is that Patrick converted all Ireland, Ireland driving out the snakes and all the other poisonous creatures. Uh, Bede records that miracle, but he does so not to say how great Patrick was, but to say how parochial Patrick was, because he compares that with miracles such as, as a man we'll hear about shortly, Edwin, who died in battle, and the story goes that a man was carrying his sick daughter somewhere, and he laid her down by the side of the road while he sorted something out with his, uh, his pack, and when he went to pick her up, she was completely cured. And uh, when he arrived at the local inn and told the innkeeper, the innkeeper asked him several questions and said, ah, you laid her on the spot where Edwin died. And there, this great miracle of healing allegedly took place. Now that, says Bede, that's a miracle. Chasing out snakes from Ireland, that's the sort of thing that only a poor Celt could manage. So that's, that's why he, he uh, puts these miracles there, to, to, to downplay the, um, the, the authority and power of the, of, of the um, uh, pre-Roman church. But actually, the conversion of Ireland ought to, go to, ought to be credited to a Gaulish monk named Palladius, uh, who came over specially for that very purpose. And even Palladius was not the only missionary. There were several missionaries operating in Ireland at the time. And the gospel had great success in Ireland. The kingdoms, one by one, it was full of little kingdoms, which is why um, in the 19th, beginning of the 19th century, it was full of little dioceses which led uh, through the, uh, uh, the emerging of those dioceses uh, directly to the rise of the Oxford movement. But be that as it may, that's a matter for another time. Um, Ireland came under the gospel, and it produced by the middle of the 6th century its 12 apostles. Uh, uh, you can find lists of them. Only two of them are, are worth mentioning in our context. One, passingly, Brendan the Navigator, who sailed in a, a boat a little larger than a bathtub, uh, single-handedly, uh, all the way to Greenland and to Newfoundland and back again. He was a great astronomer. And he wrote it all up, and many centuries later, a man called Christopher Columbus 
used his notes to guide him on his voyage across the Atlantic. And Brendan was looking for lands to evangelize. That was the spirit of the people of the time. The other is a man called Crimthan, whose monastic name is Columba. He was a citizen of, in fact, a nobleman of the kingdom of Dal Riata. Apologies to any Irish speakers. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced, but that's how it's spelled, Dal Riata. And it consisted fairly much of Northern Ireland and the uh, eastern portion of Scotland. Um, uh, there was the kingdom of Sutherland that ran from the top of Scotland down towards the Firth of, uh, of Clyde. And then you had what became known as the kingdom of Strathclyde, the other part of Dalriata. And then below that, in that little bulge that sticks out over, the, uh, over Morecambe Bay in that, that area, uh, that's, uh, that was, would become part of a Saxon kingdom. And then the main part of the highlands was Pictland, where the Picts, the remnants of the ancient British who had never been under Roman rule, were still living. In 563, Columba went to the island of Iona within the kingdom of Dalriata. And he went, some say, because he was exiled for following a murder. Some say that he went because he was full of missionary zeal. And I think another reason is also given. But he went with other monks. They built a church and a monastery. And from there, they went out to evangelize the rest of their kingdom. And then the kingdom of Sutherland. And then the Picts. And according to Columba's own records, God gave them great success. And the gospel came to all the lands. So that Scotland became, or what we would consider Scotland, the bulk of it at any rate, became Christian before the rest of Britain. Columba returned to um, Iona, and he died in May 597. What had happened in the rest of Britain? Well, the uh, Thames estuary had become uh, an access point for invaders. And the Jutes from Jutland had taken Kent. The Saxons from uh, northern Germany uh, had taken uh, Surrey and Sussex and Essex, roughly speaking, that sort of crescent round uh, through London and down to the south coast. Uh, there were Frisians there and there were Franks there. But the main invaders were the Angles. Now, the Angles were the occupants of that bit of the Danish peninsula that is below Denmark, and uh, before you, you get sort of into Germany proper. Uh, the Jutes from the top, Jutland, the Angles from lower down, and then all the way down through the Saxons, the uh, Frisians, and the uh, Franks. And the Angles were divided into two groups. The Eastern Angles, we can guess where the Eastern Angles settled, and the Western Angles, who took uh, Northamptonshire, Lincolnshire, Warwickshire, uh, that sort of area of the, uh, of the East Midlands. And over the next hundred years, they would spread out and occupy all of the rest of Britain, with the exception of Cornwall, Wales, and possibly Cumbria. Uh, Cumbria, of course, is just another way of saying Cymru or Wales. It was a, a place where the ancient Britons uh, went to live, up in that mountainous region where they were re relatively safe from invaders. 
the um, uh, Angles occupied a line from the Mersey to the Humber, northwards, all the way up to the Firth of Forth, uh, Edinburgh, and westward uh, down. They, they, they missed out the Strathclyde region, but they went across pretty much uh, to the um, extremities of Scotland on the very bottom edge. And at one point, they would found a monastery at a place called Whithorn, uh, which um, uh, it was a center of Christian activity in that part of the world for a long time. Uh, the Saxons, as we know, would spread across southern Britain, uh, the East Saxons in Essex, the Middle Saxons in Middlesex, the South Saxons in Sussex and Surrey, and then the West Saxons in everything from Berkshire all the way across through Devon and northwards as far at least as um, uh, Abingdon. So a very large kingdom. And it was pagan and it was not at all favorable to the Christian religion. And what remained of the Christian church was pushed westward into Wales, into Cornwall, and appears to have been very inactive as far as the invaders were concerned. I say appears because one of the difficulties we have is that no written records have survived from Cornwall or Wales from this period. So the only argument that could be made is the argument from silence, um, which is not a particularly strong argument. But we know nothing about anything that the church was doing in the conquered areas prior to the coming of Augustine. Now, Britain was not the only country to be conquered. The Ostrogoths conquered Italy, the Visigoths conquered Spain, the Franks conquered Gaul. And each of these had, through missionary endeavor, been restored to the gospel by men who were willing to go out and hazard their lives in the face of pagan enemies. Why should the same not happen in Britain? In 597, Augustine came to Canterbury. It was not the quickest journey ever because he left Rome in 595. And he kept stopping on the way and turning back and pleading with Gregory the Great for permission not to go to this terrible land where there were all these awful pagans who were going to slaughter him the moment he arrived. But he was given encouragement on the way and eventually he arrived in Britain. And he was welcomed by King Ethelbert of Kent. Ethelbert knew he was coming and was delighted because he thought this meant that at last these great people across the sea saw him as the great king he thought he was. And it was also helped that he had a Christian wife named Bertha, and she had a, a chaplain in her court, Bishop Ludhard, of whom he will hear more in a moment. Augustine came to re-evangelize Britain and to organize the church along the lines of the old Roman model. Britain's superior, from the south coast up to the Humber-Mersey line, Britain inferior, from that line northwards, well, to as far north as he could go. And the centre of the south was London, and of the north was York. And therefore, Augustine was sent with orders to have himself consecrated Bishop of London. 
But London was in the hands of the Saxons, and the Saxons weren't particularly well disposed toward Christians. And uh, discretion being the better part of valour, as Augustine thought, he decided he would stay in Canterbury and let somebody else take the bishopric of London. Uh, he wouldn't have been the first Bishop of London. The first Bishop of London was probably in around the year AD 170. There is a plaque uh, in a church on Corn Hill to, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the king, uh, who founded a church there in about the year AD 170, which shows that Christianity had been in Britain for a good long time. And there had been a string of uh, British bishops beforehand, but the Anglo-Saxons had put an end to all of that. Miletus, one of the monks who was sent afterwards, after the success of the mission was established, uh, became the first Saxon, or the, sorry, the first Roman bishop of London in 604. Uh, Paulinus went to York in 625. Miletus would be translated, to use the technical term, to Rochester. And then in 619, uh, after Augustine's successor had died, he would succeed as Archbishop of Canterbury. Paulinus would stay in York until 633 and then would flee for reasons we will hear about shortly. Augustine was greatly helped in his evangelizing of Kent by the presence of Queen Bertha and her chaplain, Ludhard or Letard, as a French version of the name might be. Um, she, as a Christian, had been allowed to marry Ethelbert on the understanding that she was allowed to practice her Christian faith, and for that she needed to bring a chaplain, and her ladies-in-waiting were also Christians, the reckoning is that she and Letard and perhaps even her ladies were quietly evangelizing within the court because within almost no time, baptisms began to take place. And although we may say, well, Ethelbert may well have submitted to baptism because politically it was expedient to do so, we do have to consider the honor of the missionaries. Would they simply have baptized a man because he, for political, for mercenary reasons, thought it was a good idea? Would they not have looked for some evidence of a profession of faith? Once the king became a Christian, naturally the kingdom followed. For the king is kin, the origin of the word, to his subjects. And as their head and leader, as the king, so the people. And naturally, therefore, the people followed. But of course, this was in the context of missionary work being done, of men going out to preach the gospel and to present the challenge of Christianity to paganism. And we have to remember that this is what had happened across the Roman Empire, that the pagan religion of the Roman Empire had fallen to the challenge of Christianity. And not only the pagan religion, but more difficultly, the pagan philosophy that supported the whole system. And some of the greatest men of the early church, post-New Testament, were those who took the philosophical argument and presented the gospel in terms that defeated the ideas of the pagan world. And just as an aside, I would say that is one of the greatest failures of the church today, that we are not taking up and answering the fundamental presuppositions 
that govern society's thinking today. Do we have the men to do it? Well, that's another question. But the gospel spread through Kent and on elsewhere. And uh, Christianity spread through the South and Eastern Saxons into East Anglia. Martyrdoms did take place. Church buildings were destroyed as soon as they were put up. But then others would come and rebuild, perhaps in a slightly different place. That's the foundation of Ely. The first building was some distance away, but the replacement was put after the destruction of the first at Ely. And by the mid-7th century, pretty much all of Anglo-Saxon Britain was under the gospel. Christianity was the religion of all the kingdoms, officially. And one of the ways this happened was through marriages. If a pagan king wished to marry a Christian queen, princess, it was made conditional that he at least hear the gospel. And having heard it, he was allowed, after consultation with his nobles, to decide whether or not the claims of the Christian gospel were superior to those of paganism. And if they were, it was suggested that he ought to act upon that and submit to baptism. And this seems to have worked rather well in bringing kings, and therefore kingdoms, under the gospel. Before we leave Kent, it's worth noticing a letter sent by Augustine to Gregory, and the answers to that letter, both of which are preserved by Bede. There are quite a lot of questions and answers, but just to sum up briefly, the sort of questions that were being asked were these. Uh, is the British church independent of other churches? Yes, it is, said Gregory. Gregory the Great, by the way, was the last of the Latin fathers of the church, and he was a formidable theologian. Uh, yes, he said, so long as you uh, accept the supreme authority of the Bishop of Rome, then the British church is independent of the rest. No other bishop can interfere in what's going on. Uh, whoever occupies the See of Canterbury, because by now that's where the, the chief seat was, has authority over all the other bishops of Britain. Um, it is not necessary for the British church to exactly replicate the practices of every other church. But it is free to do what seems best according to scripture within the context of its own situation. So that the church does not have to appear the same everywhere. I gather that if you were to go to a, um, uh, a Jehovah's Witness meeting uh, in any part of the world on any given uh, Sunday, then you would get the same sermon wherever you went because they're all told centrally what to do and when and where. Uh, the British church was free to do those things that were expedient within the uh, guidance of scripture within the context. And then the other great matter that was dealt with was over sexual uh, morality and immorality, divorce and remarriage, and various other things we needn't go into the details of. Suffice it to say that uh, marriage was to be restricted uh, to within the, uh, or, or to not include the bonds of kindred and affinity that are forbidden in the Levitical law, uh, and that uh, various other matters were addressed to show that there was obviously a clear difference between the way pagans viewed sexual matters and the way Christians did. So that's what was going on in the region around Canterbury. What about elsewhere? Well, we turn our attention northwards to Northumbria. Northumbria was the largest kingdom. It took up most of mainland Britain. 
uh, consisted of three smaller kingdoms, Deira, Bernicia, and Lindsay. And gradually those three kingdoms molded into one. Usually each kingdom had its own king, but one other ruled over the lot. And he was known as the Bretwalder. He was the sort of the supreme king, uh, not just of Northumbria, but reckoned normally to be the chief king over all of the Anglo-Saxon region. And it was therefore very dangerous to be an heir to any one of the thrones, whether it was one of the three smaller kingdoms or of Northumbria itself, because it was very easy to get rid of people. And therefore, if you were down the line, uh, you could advance yourself by a judicious use of poison, dagger, or whatever it might be. So it was considered expedient to take an heir and to send him away. And one such individual was Edwin, who we've mentioned before, who in 616 was living as an exile in East Anglia. Now, in 616, he de defeated the king of Northumbria. And this occasioned the exile of another heir, a man called Oswald. Uh, Oswald went to Iona, and not surprisingly, he became a Christian. Uh, Edwin mar married Ethelberg, daughter of the king of Kent, and she was a Christian. One of the conditions was that uh, Ed Edwin take Christian instruction and that he uh, allow his nobles to adjudicate as to whether or not, as I've said, Christianity was superior to paganism. And it was Paulinus who instructed Edwin in the Christian faith. And Bede tells us that something had happened to Edwin when he was in exile. Uh, an attempt had been made on his life. A poisoned dagger had actually cut him. But he had survived the experience, and he had had a vision. And in his vision, a stranger would come to him and speak with him, and afterwards would lay hands upon him. And the way Bede writes it, uh, after Edwin had received instruction from Paulinus, and uh, he and his nobles had agreed that the claims of the Christian gospel were indeed superior to those of paganism, that he did submit to baptism, and thus the man speaking to him in the laying on of hands, the vision that he had seen was fulfilled in his baptism. This was the year 627. And once Edwin was uh, professing the Christian faith, Northumbria followed. Not everybody was delighted with this turn of events. South of um, Northumbria, in the western part of the Midlands, was the pagan kingdom of Mercia. And Mercia was ruled by King Penda. And either King Penda lived a very, very long time, or Penda was at least a family name, if not a title, that was passed down the generations. But on this occasion, Penda allied with Cadwalla, the king of Gwyneth, and they met Edward in battle at Hatfield Chase in either the year 632 or 633, or possibly 634, depending on your reading of the history. And the upshot of it was that Edwin perished. The pagans took Northumbria, and they began immediately to drive out Christianity, hence Paulinus fleeing south. But we know that in 634, Oswald, returning from Iona, was able to gather an army loyal to him, and they fought a battle at Heavenfield. Heavenfield is a very unprepossessing little place uh, outside Hexham in Northumbria. There is a little church there, 
And it's very hard, looking at the, uh, at the area now, to imagine that ever such an important battle took place there. But uh, Oswald won. Uh, I think Pender was killed in the battle. Uh, either way, Iona uh, was um, triumphant in the sense that Christianity was restored to Northumbria. But knowing what had happened under the pagans uh, when Pender and the others had been there, and knowing how many people had renounced their Christian faith, uh, which gives us, gives us an indication as to the depth of uh, conversions, Oswald very wisely sent to Iona for missionaries. And the first man who came was a man called Corman. And Corman came and he ministered for a while and he went home in disgust saying, these wretched Northumbrians won't talk to me. And uh, when I do have occasion to talk to me, they don't seem to take any notice of what I'm saying. And another monk who was present at this uh, complaint to hear it, a man called Aidan said, well, if you learn to speak Northumbrian instead of addressing them in Irish, and if you got down off your horse to speak to them instead of speaking from horseback, perhaps you might get somewhere. And uh, Aidan was volunteered, uh, in not in an entirely dissimilar way to the way that John Knox was appointed, um, trying to flee the church. Uh, very reluctant, but finally he accepted that he ought to go as the missionary. And he came to... Uh, Bamborough, the capital of Northumbria, and he began to preach. And he did so having first of all learned the Northumbrian language, and uh, Oswald, who uh, had very high views of himself as king, thought that it was only right that his bishop should ride on a horse as he did, so he gave uh, Aidan the best horse in his stable. Edward went, uh, um, Aidan went out riding it. First person he met was a beggar stumbling along in the mud, and guess what happened? The king was very disappointed that his magnificent horse was now the possession of a beggar. But that's something of who this man Aidan was. He was most interested in speaking with people. And he is known as the Apostle of the North. There's a rather fanciful statue to him uh, at Lindisfarne. Uh, I think it was put up in the 19, either the 50s or the 80s. Um, but um, Lindisfarne is where he chose to make a monastery. It's an island that's cut off at high tide and therefore bears some similarities to Iona that he would have known. And uh, it became the seat of missionary activity throughout Northumbria. And the, the monks went out, they the, the went out from, North, from Lindisfarne. Uh, they went into the pagan kingdom of Mercia and they went further south as well. Uh, by 653, Mercia was accounted a Christian kingdom. Again, a royal marriage had played a very large part in this. Uh, a man called Sed went to reconvert the recanting East Saxons in the year 653 as well. They would, when an outbreak of plague uh, happened, renounce their Christian faith yet again. But then a Mercian bishop, Jaraman, would come and bring them back to the gospel. Said had a brother called Chad, who would become Bishop of Lichfield and would do much to establish Christianity in the Mercian kingdom. A man called Barinus, another uh, Roman missionary, went out from, uh, to the West Saxons and he got to Winchester. And uh, along um, th through the old kingdom of Wessex, you will find a number of churches dedicated 
to Borinus. Uh, but um, Borinus died without making all the impact that he would, may, may have wished. Uh, another monk came and um, didn't get very far, but then uh, another monk, Lutherius, came and brought about a lasting change in the West Saxons through the Gospel. The South Saxons were evangelized by Wilfred. Wilfred had come from Lindisfarne. Uh, he had um, been responsible uh, for the uh, Synod of Whitby in 664. The Synod of Whitby was called uh, to settle the question of the dating of Easter. The Roman Church followed a particular set of calculations for when Easter should be celebrated. The uh, Ionian Church, the Celtic Church, followed a different set of uh, calculations. And this meant that if you had uh, a, a, in, in the court uh, one member of the royal family following Rome and one member following Iona, then one lot would be having their Lenten fast while the other lot were having their Easter feasts. And it all seemed rather peculiar. The reason for the, for the agreement of the Roman dating was purely political. It was to put off a coup. But Wilfred played a very big part in this. Uh, Wilfred had high ambitions. Uh, he was appointed uh, uh, as uh, a bishop uh, in Northumbria, and uh, he decided that his fellow bishops had not been properly consecrated. So he went off to Gaul to find bishops who had been properly consecrated to consecrate him. And when he got home, he found that he'd lost the job. Um, somebody else had been put in instead. Uh, so he was exiled. But in his exile, he went to Sussex and he preached the gospel. And by 670, uh, Sussex professed faith in Christ. Um, the last part of Britain to become officially Christian, believe it or not, was the Isle of Wight in the year 686. And that uh, brings us to consider briefly an important character, Theodore of Tarsus, uh, who was a very active Archbishop of Canterbury. Tarsus was a Greek-speaking part of the world. Uh, the Persians had begun to press into that part of the world in 637, and uh, he'd had to flee. He was only a boy then. Uh, he'd gone to Constantinople, where he had studied a variety of subjects, and he was obviously a great scholar. Uh, he went from there to Rome, and he happened to be on hand when a man called Wighard, who had been sent to become the new Archbishop of Canterbury, he had to go to Rome to receive the pallium, that lambswool cape that uh, was, was uh, put on as the indication of a person being Archbishop. Uh, he went there to get it, but he dropped dead before he could be consecrated Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, the preferred candidate was a man called Hadrian, but Hadrian said, no, I'm far too old for this, give it to somebody else. So the, I think then something um, ridiculous, like 68-year-old uh, um, Theodore was appointed instead. And uh, Hadrian went to keep him in order. And so Theodore came to Britain and effectively shut the door behind him when he came in. Uh, he, he cut off pretty much all communication with the continent. Wilfred uh, complained when... Theodore, who was a great organizer, looked at the Diocese of Northumbria and said, it's far too big for one man to run. Uh, and he carved out of it the Diocese of Hexham. And uh, Wilfred was furious, and he wrote to the Pope, and he said, make him give me back Hexham. 
And the Pope wrote to Theodore and said, give him back Hexham. And Theodore waited for the letter to arrive and then went on a journey, leaving the letter unopened on his desk. That was his way of dealing with correspondence from the continent. He just ignored whatever he thought he should ignore. He went about through uh, the diocese of Britain, and one of the things he did was to establish schools where Greek was taught, because he brought with him a number of monks who were Greek speakers. And he made them, and he himself was a teacher, and he got them to teach the clergy of the British church to uh, the Greek language so they could read the scriptures in the original. And it would come about that Britain would become pretty much the last place in what we can consider continental Europe to have Greek, so much so that Charlemagne would send to Winchester uh, in the ninth century for Greek speakers to reintroduce Greek into his own court because it had been lost in Europe. And the Saxon church would become a very missionary-minded church, uh, in part because of the actions of Theodore. Uh, when Theodore came to Lichfield, he found that Chad had never actually been consecrated. He'd simply taken on the job of bishop because there was no one else there to do it. And uh, uh, Theodore consecrated him bishop, but then pointed out that as he didn't really have the right to the job, he shouldn't become, he shouldn't be the bishop. And so Chad stepped down, and Wilfred took the job very, very willingly. But later, after the death of Wilfred, um, Theodore went and found Chad and said, please become Bishop of Litchfield. And Chad did. Uh, and he, he had a way of dealing with people that made, him, made people want to actually help him and uh, obey him. He, he was a very personable individual, very erudite, uh, but very down-to-earth. And he was a very good organising Archbishop of Canterbury. He convened the Council of Hatfield, uh, in 673, where the bishops of all the seven kingdoms were required to attend, and there he published ten chapters or rules that covered such things as the independence of each diocese, uh, the discipline of the clergy, so that if you were ordained in one diocese, you couldn't simply go to another one to become uh, a pastor of a church, the, the, the priest of a church. You had to come with letters demissary, stating that you were in good standing, so that a man who had been disciplined in one place couldn't simply go elsewhere and start again there. Uh, how much better things would have been uh, in recent years in both the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church in this country if such discipline had been imposed more sensibly. Uh, he also established a common rule for divorce and remarriage, so that people couldn't go elsewhere for an easier divorce or for an easier remarriage, because it was the same discipline throughout the country. Whether we agree with it or not is another matter. But the point is, he had a common discipline. Now, therefore, some people date the origin of the Church of England to 597, but I think, properly speaking, we should date it to 673. Uh, whatever happens, we don't date it to anything in the reign of Henry VIII. He called a second synod in 680 uh, to present the findings of the Council of Constantinople that sat 680 to 681. So it was concurrent with the Council of Constantinople, the Third Council, which shows that communication between Britain and the mainland, was, or, or, or the continent, was obviously very good. 
and he was able to uh, instruct them in what was going on, and what was going on was the answer to the heresy of monothelitism, uh, the, the teaching that Christ had only one will. Uh, but we know perfectly well that Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has two wills, the divine and the human, and that the human is fully uh, subordinate to the divine. But the monothelites taught otherwise. Uh, I don't know that monothelitism was ever a great issue in Britain, but the church needed to know what was going on. And that has never changed. We have always needed to know what is going on in the church elsewhere because the errors of one place spread into other places. And we need to be aware of these things. And for that reason, he reminded them and required them to accept the conclusions, the decisions of the First Council of Nicaea that had sat in 325, the First Council of Constantinople, 381, the First Council of Ephesus, 431, of Chalcedon in 451, and the Second Constantinopolitan Council, 553. And the Church of England also subscribed to the Lateran Council of 649. The First Council, where the Western Church, but not the Eastern Church, accepted its decisions and decrees. Theodore died in 690. By then, he had established a number of monasteries and schools, chief among them Jarrow and Wearmouth on Tyneside, best known as the home of the Venerable Bede, who was born in around 673 and died in 735. Uh, not the only great Englishman of his age, Boniface, uh, uh, was, who died in 754, was the apostle to the Germans and was originally a monk called Winfrith from Crediton. Friesland was converted under Willibrod from uh, Northumbria, who died in 739, and Alcuin of York would answer the call of Charlemagne to improve their education. As I've mentioned, he died in 814. And therefore, by the middle of the 8th century, we can say with certainty that the British church was not behind the rest of the church in terms of theological education, organization, and so forth. But an event was about to take place that would change all that. Just to say a quick word about Bede, who was born in around 672 in Wearmouth. Um, he was possibly the greatest scholar of his age. He wrote many commentaries. And one of his, on the Song of Solomon, I think on the whole, is not really different from the Puritan allegorical view of the Song of Solomon. His, his method was, as the church was in those days, allegorical, but you can't really make sense of the Song of Solomon without it being an allegory. And he saw it as descriptive of the relationship between Christ and the church. He also saw uh, the tabernacle and the, the, the temple as pictures of the church and of heaven, and he expounded parts of scripture on that basis. He wrote commentaries on Revelation, on the Gospels, including a harmony of the Gospels, on the Catholic epistles, on Genesis, and on much more. He had access to one of the best libraries around at the time. Jarrow had a very well-stocked library. But probably his most important work was the translating of the Bible into the vernacular, into the English of the day. And he did this by having the monks read to him uh, from the Latin, and he translated uh, back to them uh, in the ordinary language, and then they would then write it down. And the picture that is drawn from us by Cuthbert 
is of Bede on his deathbed, uh, very near the end. And one of his students reads to him the last paragraph of John's Gospel, and he rallies himself to find the strength to turn that back into the English of the day, and it's written down. And then he, it is recorded, sang a hymn to the Trinity, and then died peacefully. Uh, the picture is of a very godly individual who had a genuine concern that the ordinary people should know the word of God. He never managed to get the whole of the Bible done. Uh, the methods they had in those days would have been uh, rather uh, slow. But it would be another 600 years or so before another Englishman would take up the job, John Wycliffe. How important Bede is as a marker of the quality, as it were, of the church. Well, he died in 735. In 793, Lindisfarne was raided from the sea. The Danes had come. Uh, I know what time is moving on. We shall do this rather quickly. Uh, the, the Danes came and they went. And then um, for about 50 years, all was well. And people began to think, well, that was a one-off. And then in 849, uh, Iona had to be abandoned after it was raided. In 875, Lindisfarne was raided and the church destroyed. There were no more synodal meetings in Britain after 845. And only three books have been found published between 835 and 885, suggesting that things were very difficult at the time. Monasteries and palaces tended to be very close together, and therefore it was very easy for the raiders to go through both and get all the gold and the silver, etc., from both. The monks of Iona retreated to Ireland, taking the Book of Kells with them, uh, but Ireland, of course, was invaded by the Danes as well. Uh, York and thus Northumbria falling in 867, East Anglia in 869, Mercia almost immediately afterwards by 870. The Anglo-Saxons were restricted to the West Country and gradually uh, began to fight back, first of all, under the great King Alfred. Um, what happened was that uh, Alfred, uh, he became king most unexpectedly. He was the fourth son of the second son, and therefore about the last person you would have expected to become king. But such were the times that everyone ahead of him got killed in battle, and he ended up being sort of the last man standing. He was a Christian. Uh, he, he had courtly prayers. He began a, a, a sort of um, a council meeting to govern him, the beginning of the Privy Council and so forth. Uh, uh, he had the, the, the clergy of the church to advise him spiritually in things, and he saw it as his Christian duty to re restore the land from paganism. And um, he managed, uh, by 878, the Battle of Eddington, uh, through, uh, thought to take place in Wiltshire, uh, to begin to push back by the 9th century. Uh, Wessex ruled all the way through into Kent, um, and um, uh, gradually... Uh, England was, uh, as it became, the, the merging of the Anglo-Saxons Anglo and the Danes became the English, and uh, gradually the land came under the gospel once more. And his great thing as he went about, as he conquered more and restored more, was to set up Christian education everywhere he could. Um, he believed that the Danes had come to exterminate Christianity in Britain and that therefore this was a fight for the survival of the land. And it will be his grandson, Athelstan, 
who died in uh, 939, who would eventually unite the whole nation under one crown, the first properly English king in that sense. He divided the, the land into shires, uh, and although they ceased to have um, uh, any sort of binding meaning in 1974, most of us still refer to areas as, uh, by their shire names. Um, the church that emerged out of this was a rather different church. Uh, the Benedictine rule had come in by now, and therefore things were uh, organized, monasteries were organized in a very different way from what they had been before. Um, a high degree of cooperation between crown and church, though later, of course, under the Normans, that would become a, a, a cause of a great deal of conflict and would lead directly into the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, the invading Danes had been conquered by the gospel, um, and uh, uh, Bishop Wolston, who was Bishop of London uh, and then of Worcester, which shows that London at that time was not considered a particularly important uh, bishopric, published his Institutes of Polity, and then he set out the duties of both the bishop and of all the other um, offices, the doorkeeper, the reader, the exorcist, the acolyte, the subdeacon, the deacon, the priest as well. That's how the order of the ministry was divided up in those days. Uh, but they took them all from scripture, so they claimed and believed they had a scriptural basis for all that they were doing. And uh, he also taught that it was a job of the bishop, not only to, to pray and to read the scriptures, but also to engage in manual labor, uh, to preach the gospel at every opportunity, and to restrain uh, immoral and rowdy behavior during royal feasts. Uh, further attempts were made to translate the scriptures into English. Some sermons have come down showing that there was a serious call to holiness at that time uh, among the laity as well as the clergy. Uh, there's then a long list of kings who followed afterwards, sometimes Saxon, sometimes Danish. One of the most famous is King Knut, uh, who, as we know, uh, had his throne set up on the beach to drive the sea back. It wasn't because he thought he could, but it was to prove to his courtiers that he couldn't, that there is an authority higher than him, the God of heaven. Uh, Svein uh, Forkbeard tried to bring the, uh, England back under Danish pagan rule, but he was only king for about three months. Um, he was followed by uh, Canute, then by Harold I, then by Hartha Canute, and then um, Alfred's heirs came along, Edward the Confessor, who died in 1066. Harold Godwin Godwinson became king in name at least, very briefly, but of course having defeated the Danes once more, Harold Hardrada, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, uh, he then had to go south and face William at Hastings, and there he perished. And um, I'm, I'm aware I've gone over my time, but I just a very brief word of conclusion. The arrival of William brought about a massive change in the church, and uh, it, it's, it's a period that needs to be considered for its own sake. Uh, a question that may be in our minds is what sort of Christianity was it? Well, it wasn't particularly what we would recognize in many respects. It was exactly the same as the rest of the church. So um, ritualistic, uh, the Lord's Supper had become the Mass, though as yet the doctrine of transubstantiation had not been formally established, though it was the common view. 
um, uh, an awful lot of things were being done there that uh, we would be glad to see the back of at the Protestant Reformation. But it was no different from the church elsewhere. And although attempts have been made to elevate the Celtic church as somehow better, there's no real evidence that that should be accepted. I want to conclude with four brief lessons from this survey. I think these are important lessons for us today. And the first is this, that if the church is to survive, it must be a missionary church. When the military and cultural defense of imperial Rome no longer defended the church in this land, it was exposed to forces that it had not been exposed to before. And that although we cannot discount the providence of God in protecting uh, the church and in causing these things to happen, we must recognize that it was by bearing witness to the invaders that the church was reestablished in this land. It fell to those with a missionary zeal to do this. Political and spiritual opposition and even martyrdoms could not dampen the desire to preach the gospel as widely as possible. Even after the resurgence of paganism under the Danes, the church again struggled to its feet. And the effect was extraordinary, that in spite of the numbers who perished, and many did, ultimately, by missionary zeal and the grace of God, Christianity was restored in this land. Now, you look at surveys today, speaking about how many people go to church. I know that those surveys are not entirely trustworthy because of their definition of a church. We need that missionary zeal today. The second thing we note is that there must be unity among believers. Although we may wonder about divisions over such things as the dating of Easter, we can't also avoid the effect of those divisions. And they were exploited by the different parties for their own ends. Unity in doctrine is essential. And it is a wonderful thing when Christians who may have differences on certain aspects of practice can nevertheless acknowledge a genuine unity in the gospel. I don't mean because they can both affirm the Apostles' Creed or anything like that, good as that is, but because we actually go further and deeper into Christian truth, into the matters of regeneration and the new birth and life in the spirit and so forth. True unity is to be maintained. Thirdly, we see that Christian education is vital for the well-being of the church. And if we compare the state of Christian education today with what it was in, say, the 17th century, we may throw up our hands in horror and say, is anybody learning anything of great value? Uh, It is through good Christian education that a lot of the errors are kept back and people are alerted to the dangers that exist. I'm going through these things extremely quickly. Fourthly and finally, the church is as dependent upon God's grace as any of, any of us are individually. And therefore we must pray for the church in our land, not necessarily in a particular denomination, but for the body of Christ in our land. We may see many faults. We may wish to reject things that are being done, wrong teaching and wrong actions and so forth. But nevertheless, the true church is still the body of those whose duty it is to bear the light of Christ before the world. And therefore, we need to pray that God would bless the labours of the church. And if we don't pray, who will? 
If our Heavenly Father were to remove that light, what would become of us, of our children, of our neighbours? Let us pray for the church in our day.